are in the middle of chapter 25 still, and this chapter is really a very empowering chapter. In a certain sense, it's the crux of everything we learned before in Tanya, and it's about tapping into the resources that we have now that we've learned what we learned, tapping into the resources that we have in order to make it very available to us to serve Hashem with love and with awe. And we said that every Jew has this inner core, this essential self, the essential self of a Jew, who you are as a person, really, in your, you're going to feel all the layers of who you are. You know, we all have our contextual self. We act this way when we're a mother, and we act this way when we're a spouse, and we act this way when we're a boss, and this way when we're an employee. We peel all the layers of our existence, and we're going to come to our core. Who are we as, at our core? We are part of Hashem. That's who we are. We are part of Hashem. We are a being that has this divine soul within us, which is part of Hashem himself. And we do not want to be separated him even at the price of life. A Jew has this thing within himself that when he's faced with a test to either depart from Hashem and say that they turn their back on Hashem, they say they're not Jewish anymore, they're not having a relationship with Hashem anymore, a Jew will die. And this has been throughout history. Jews have given up their life so as not to bow down to an idol. Even if they weren't observant their whole life, when it came to that deciding moment, they gave up life. And so the Alter Rebbe is teaching us that we don't have to just wait for this bomb to explode, this nuclear power to explode at a moment of a test. We can take this bomb that we have within us, that's our core self, who we really are, and we can tap into its resources to inform our behavior every single day. It's not just think Global, it's also act local. People who just like love the world, but then they can't get along with anybody in it. No, love the world and also learn how to get along with everybody inside of it. Have this atomic bomb. A person has this place inside themselves that they'll give up their life so as not to separate from Hashem. But let that knowledge inform your everyday behavior. That's not just about dying for Hashem. It's living with Hashem. And so, therefore, it is very, very much within reach if we can tap into this resource and know that a Jew will die so as not to separate from Hashem. Dying is the worst possible torture, God forbid. And if a person will endure discomfort then knowing that, you know what, they, were, they can make this idea available to them. They were going to die rather than separate from Hashem. And every single act of transgression separates them from Hashem. That's the insanity that we were battling with. They were making a distinction between idol worship and other sins. But guess what? Every single sin separates a person from Hashem at the moment, just like idol worship does. So a person can tap into that resource and say, hey, they were going to die. They were going to die so as not to bow down to an idol. How about enduring a little bit of discomfort in resisting temptation so as not to separate from Hashem? It's much easier to resist temptation. Sure, it's painful. No one's saying it's not painful. Sure, it's painful to resist temptation, but resisting temptation is less painful than death. And death, they would have endured so as not to separate from Hashem. How about resisting temptation so as not to separate from Hashem? So that was the first section. And then we started to say, we can use this knowledge of who we are, essentially. We can tap into our core self, not just to avoid doing transgressions, but also to move beyond our comfort level in augmenting our relationship with Hashem. Up until now, we were just talking about not transgressing. But now we're talking about moving beyond our comfort level in order to become closer to Hashem. We can tap into this knowledge, too, in order to move beyond our comfort level. And I I warned you last week (laughs) that this session is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. It's saying, go beyond what you're comfortable with. 
So this is important. And when we move into this section, I think we should just bear in mind what it means to make a proper assessment of what we are capable of. So I heard this really great three-step analysis, how to make a cheshbon hanefesh, take a self-accounting and see where you are as far as your potential goes. So step one is, step number one is say, what is the ultimate expectation of a Jewish person? Think of the most ultimate Jewish person you can think of, the greatest tzaddik. I guess that's the ultimate. Now, let's be a little realistic. Look at your own self and say, well, that's the ultimate potential for a Jewish woman. What's, where am I realistically? What can be expected of me? Step number two. And then step number three is, okay, now where am I holding as far as my expectations go? I don't think anybody's going to say I'm holding exactly where my expectations are. We can go a little bit more before, beyond that. There's the story of the famous Hasidic master, Rabbi Zosh of Anapoli. And as he was on his deathbed, he was crying. And his Hasidim asked him, Master, why do you cry? And he said, he said, I'm afraid. But I'm not afraid that Hashem is going to ask me, why weren't you Moshe? Why weren't you Moses, our teacher? That wasn't expected of me. I'm afraid that Hashem is going to ask of me, Zusha, why weren't you Zusha? And so really that's what we're working at over here. Checking to see there's a certain expectation that's grand, that's almost beyond us. Which, by the way, our sages say, a person always has to ask themselves, when will my deeds reach that of my forefathers? So it's not as beyond us as we think. When will my deeds reach that of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov? Literally, our forefathers. Okay, but let's think of what's the ultimate for a Jewish person. Then think of, okay, realistically, where I am right now. What is the ultimate for me in my space right now? And then thirdly, well, where am I holding as far as that? Where do I measure up? Okay, so we're talking about now tapping into our resource to know who we are at our core and use that in order to advance in our relationship with Hashem. We are on page five. Oh, not yet. I'm sorry. We're on page four, just at the end of page four. Right? Likewise, in the category of doing good. Hi, welcome. Nice to meet you. Come sit down. Here's a copy. Oh, you have one. Okay, great. We're on page four, the bottom of page four. Likewise, in the category of doing good, a person can employ the power of his hidden love to strengthen himself like a lion with might and determination of heart. Neged hayeter hamachbid against the evil nature which weighs down his body and casts over him a sloth which stems from the element of earth that is in his animal soul and we discussed this last week that laziness comes from the element of earth within the animal soul trying to cast heaviness over the person this laziness prevents him from exerting his body energetically with every type of effort and strain in the service of Hashem that entails effort and toil. So our sages praised the, the trait of alacrity, zrizos. They said, zrizin makdim and lemitzvahs. People who are quick are the first ones to do mitzvahs. They also said that zrizos leads to purity of the soul. Being quick and being nimble <laughs> in serving Hashem is really a great trait and it's very desirable. And that's because when you think that we have the privilege to serve Hashem, 
We should be moving quickly. It should inspire us to want to jump and run. So we are expected to not just overcome laziness, but actually to do things with great alacrity. Do it with joy. I mean, look at Avraham, our forefather, that when he was called, summoned by Hashem, <coughs> to sacrifice his only son, it says, Vayashkem Avraham Babaiker. Avraham got up early in the morning. You would think, to sacrifice his son. Did he really want to sacrifice his son? He got up early, he did it with Zrizas, in order to serve Hashem. So we are expected to not just do what we need to do, but actually do it with joy and alacrity. And this is, really requires a battle with our evil inclination, because our evil inclination tries to weigh us down, make us heavy and sad. And, and this is really going against this and saying, hey, <laughs> tap into this resource that you have. You have this resource within you. You have this resource within you that because you're so close to Hashem, because you desire attachment at your core, that's who you are, your core is attachment to Hashem, okay? You have this resource within you that so as not to detach, you would die. Death is the worst. How about enduring a little bit of discomfort so as not to disobey Him? How about enduring a little bit of discomfort to go the extra mile? That's what we're talking about here. And if you'll notice, all the examples that the Altar River will be giving over here are examples of going the extra mile, above what's required by halacha. Okay, so the first example, the Altar is going to give examples in the three pillars upon which the world stands. This is from Mishnah and Avos. The, the, uh, Rabbi Shimon was... He was one of the last mem- members of the men of the great assembly. And he said, I made. The world stands on three things. Stands on Torah, on service of Hashem, which today is prayer, and Gemilas Chasadim are acts of kindness. So first we're going to examine how we can go beyond our self, go the extra mile in Torah study. Kigain. La'amo batayra bi'iyun. For example, to labor in the Torah with deep concentration and also orally so his mouth will never cease from study. So this looks like just one short sentence, but it is very, very loaded. The first thing we're going to examine is to labor in Torah study. Our sages tell us that man was born to toil in Torah. Toil doesn't mean just kind of get by. It means actually work hard. It means go beyond your comfort level. Even if you love studying, studying a little more than is comfortable for you, studying in an area that is not what you love to study, working, actually working. In fact, Reish Lakish says that Torah is not acquired by somebody, and I'm just telling you what it says in the Talmud, okay? (laughs) Torah is not acquired by somebody unless he kills himself over it. Killing himself over it doesn't, God forbid, mean actually losing losing life, but means really, really straining himself. Like it says, Zos Zos Hatayra Hai! So again, the Talmud says that Torah is not acquired unless somebody kills himself over it. And what's the, the proof text? What does he bring from the Torah? It says, Zais hatayra adam kiyamos Literally, it's the laws of purity and impurity. This is the law if somebody dies in a tent. But also, he interprets it in a different fashion. This is the Torah if somebody kills himself in the tent, meaning he works himself literally that he's so devoted for Torah study. So it's one thing to like study here and there, lie down on the couch and read, but it's another thing to actually toil. And there's two ways of toiling in Torah study. The first one is bi'iyun, with deep concentration. Again, this is beyond the letter of the law, because if somebody studies without deep concentration, they're still fulfilling the mitzvah of Torah study. 
generally there is something called bittel Torah, which is the neglect of Torah study. So there's neglect of Torah study when it comes to time. But on a subtle level, there's something called neglect of Torah study when it comes to your soul powers. If you're not investing yourself enough in Torah study, this is not actual Bittu Torah. It's not like a person sins if they don't do that. But on a subtle, sensitive level, if they're not using everything that they have to study Torah, this is a form of neglect. If a person doesn't study with, to the point that they can explain it well, to the point that they're delving deeply, to the point that they're coming up with new ideas, that means that there's a place in their soul in Chachma, Bina, and Das that they're not using enough in Torah study. And that's why this also explains a statement in the, in the Talmud. The Talmud says that Mivatlin Talmud Torah, a person cancels their Torah study in order to hear the Megillah. We brought this up in class before. What does that mean, canceling Torah study in order to hear the Megillah? The Megillah is part of the scriptural writings. It's, it's part of Tanakh. Which one? It's part of Kesufim. Which Megillah? Megillah's Esther. It's part of Kesuvim. How are we saying that they're canceling their Torah study in order to hear the Megillah? Megillah is Torah study. But you cannot compare deep, incisive study to hearing just simple reading. And at that level, yes, it's considered canceling Torah study. So first of all, they have to toil hard in Torah study to the point where they're concentrating deeply. And the other thing is, orally, so that his mouth will never cease from Torah study. Torah study is not just about mental exertion, but it's about actually saying the words. A lot of people don't know this. Part of the mitzvah of Torah study is saying the words that you study. The Altar Rebbe writes in Hilchos Talmud Torah, the laws of Torah study, that it's important to make it audible, vocalize what you're saying while you learn. And if not, although you still are fulfilling the mitzvah of Torah study, you're not fulfilling the mitzvah of Ulamadatim Aisam, and you shall learn them, because this is specifically by your mouth. If a person is studying mentally, they are fulfilling the mitzvah of Hagisa bo yom You shall ponder on them day and night. But ulamadatem aysam, they are not. In the book of Yehoshua, he says, This book of Torah shall never cease from your mouth. You shall think about it day and night. Cease from your mouth. You are supposed to say the words orally. There's a, so if we learn, if we go to Shira to learn Torah, we're not considering as learning Torah? So that's a very good question, and that too is addressed. And that is, if you're at a Shira where somebody else is saying it, it's like you're saying it. Just like if somebody makes a bracha and you say amen, it's like they said a bracha for you. If you're at a Torah Shira and you're hearing somebody else say the words, it's like you yourself are enunciating the words. Well, thank you. I was about to say, should we all start reading <laughs> Yeah, but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And actually, later on in Hilchas Talmud Torah, in the same section, the Alter Rebbe says that saying the words out loud to yourself helps you remember them. Right. When you say the words out loud to yourself, helps you remember them. There is a story of the famous Bruria, the woman of the Talmud, a brilliant woman. She was the daughter of Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan, one of the ten martyrs. She was the wife of the great Rabbi Meir, one of the greatest sages of the Mishnah. They said about her that every not a day went by that she didn't learn three hundred manners pertaining to halacha. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi favored her opinion over her brothers when it came to deciding halacha. And one of the great sages of that time said, Rabbi Hanina's daughter, Bruria, is a greater scholar than her brother. So this lady, Bruria, this Torah scholar, Bruria, once saw a student learning. And he was learning quietly. And she kicked him. I don't know if it means figuratively or actually. And she said, this is not the way to preserve it. If you want to preserve it, 
It says, Arucha Bakal Ushmura, arranged in everything and kept, guarded. If the Torah is arranged in all your 248 limbs, if you are exerting yourself using your body in order to study Torah, you're going to keep it. If not, you're going to lose it. So in order to keep our Torah study, it's important to actually say the word. So there's two aspects in Torah study. There's the aspect of deep concentration, using all your soul power to really delve into what you're learning, not to just kind of read superficially. And then there's the aspect of actually saying the words. The Talmud says, Zamer b'chol yom, zamer b'chol yom. Sing every day, sing every day. And commenting on this, the Maharal says, sing every day means say it orally. Say the words of Torah orally, like a song that is said orally. As our sages have said, a man should always submit to the words of Torah like the ox to the yoke and the donkey to the load. So these are two animals that are given for hard labor. Two kinds of hard labor. There's the ox that wears the yoke and there's the donkey that, that carries the burden. And the ox, its strength is about plowing the land, crumbling the hard soil, making it ready for planting. And this is similar to somebody who uses all their soul powers in order to deeply delve into an issue and figure out all the kinks, making everything smooth. And the donkey that travels by day and by night and not resting is similar to the person who is constantly uttering words of Torah and never giving himself a rest from saying the words out loud to himself. Okay, so that was Torah, and now we're looking at prayer. Similarly, with regard to devout prayer, he should exert himself with all the strength he can muster. First and foremost, of course, you have to know who you're praying to, and then you should try to know what you're saying, the meaning of the words. But besides this, this is about actually like wringing your soul out to Hashem, davening with all your efforts. There's a story of a chassid from the previous generation that came to an inn. He was so tired that he refused supper and went straight to his room. But before going to bed, he's gonna say Shema. So he puts one leg up on the bed, other on the floor, and he's concentrating, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Achad, what it means that Hashem is one. They find him in the very same position the next morning, he never went to bed. Remember, he was so tired that he refused supper. But here was a man who wasn't having the same meditation today as he was yesterday. He was really exerting himself, wringing him out in, himself out in prayer. Everybody has to look at their own self and their own circumstances and know where their limit is and push themselves to their limit. And then the third thing, So too with regard to serving Hashem in monetary matters, such as the duty of, tzedakah, of charity, tzedakah. So again, with tzedakah, a person has to push themselves beyond their limit. This is not a high holiday appeal. <laughs> this is just an appeal of sorts to your own self, to ask yourself, am I giving as much as I should be giving? And am I giving as many times as I should be giving? The Torah says when giving to a person, it says, you shall surely give him. Why this repeat, give, give? And Sifrei says, even a hundred times. Sometimes the same person comes to you again and again. It's like, enough. How many times do you want me to give to the same person? It's not just the amount you give, but it's also the mercy that you have on the same person again and again with the same joy. This is really pushing yourself to the limit. It's going beyond what's comfortable for you. Now, uh, generally in the laws of tzedakah, a person is supposed to be giving 10%. 
a person is generous, the law is they should give 20%. And the Talmud says, A person who squanders shouldn't squander more than a fifth. So there's a story of the Baal Shem Tov that they asked him, I don't understand, you give way more than a fifth of your money to tzedakah. How are you able to go against the, the, what it says in the Talmud? A person who gives generously, squandering, shouldn't give more. He said, look at the word, what it says. It says, hamivazves. Mivazves comes from the same word as biza, spoils of war. A person for whom giving is very difficult, it's a battle every time they give, then to, for them to extricate the money from them, it's considered spoils of war. And for such a person, when the... Giving is like extricating, like grabbing loot from them. Okay, for you, no more than a fifth. But for somebody who loves giving and joy is a joy and a pleasure, why is giving any more than, more than a fifth a problem? Just like I can spend money on my pleasure, things that I want to buy for myself, why can't I spend money on tzedakah that for me giving is joy and a pleasure? It's not considered spoils of war. And then furthermore, elsewhere in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe speaks about giving more than a person is allowed to give, supposedly, halakhically, 20%. But there's another way of giving that more than 20% that is okay. And that is because the Arizal, the great master of Kabbalah, the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, just prescribes certain fasts for certain sins. In today's day and age, we are not able to do that amount of fasts without harming our body. We're not allowed to harm our body they're not going to be able to do the fast, if they're not going to be able to fast because they're squandering their health, how are they going to get the atonement that they could be gaining from fasting? So instead, they can redeem their fasts by giving tzedakah. So in this sense, they're giving more than 20%, but this is, they're allowed to spend more than 20% on the doctor. Can't say, well, the medical bills are too high, don't give more than 20% for your medical bills. This is like medical bills. It's like spiritual medical bills. So now, again, it said the, the Talmud tells us, chayecha kaidmin your life takes precedence. And this speaks specifically, two men are traveling in the desert, they have one flask of water, and they can't divide it because if they only have half each, they're both gonna die. So should the man give it to his friend? No, he has a Torah obligation to preserve his own life and he needs to drink his water himself. That's when it's measure for measure. But what if there is one river that's flowing through two towns, and both of them need drinking water, the first town takes the water for themselves because they need the drinking water for the citizens. What if the first town needs the water to wash their clothes and the second town needs it for the drinking water for the citizens? The first town cannot keep the water for washing clothes. They have to let the water flow through to the next town because the people need it for drinking. So there's different calculations as far as that goes and everybody has to look at themselves and saying, am I giving as much as I can as far as pushing my comfort level, and am I giving as often as I can pushing the comfort level? And then, of course, am I giving with my full heart? So there's a story of the previous Rebbe, Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak, when he was a little boy, seven years old. His grandmother treated him to watermelon. And so he took the watermelon, he came outside, and he shared it with his friends. He was eating on a bench opposite his father's window. A little while later, his father called him in and said, Yosef Yitzchak, I see that you shared your watermelon with your friends but I don't think you shared with your full heart. And then he explained to him there's a difference between sharing with a good eye and sharing with a bad eye. And the little old boy left his father's room and he's very sad. And he cried and he cried and he cried and he cried till he threw up. And his mother was very upset and she said, what do you want? He's just a little boy. And the father said, it's good for him. 
he will acquire it as part of his character. So here his father was teaching him, it's not just enough to give, but give with your full heart. One of my brothers has a friend that was fabulously, fabulously wealthy at one point in his life, and he gave and gave and gave generously. And at this point in life, he's not as wealthy as he used to be. And he doesn't regret a thing that he gave. And he said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that, as far as pushing yourself for tzedakah goes, and so that was the three. One with Torah study, one with prayer, and one with charity. And now we're looking at how else does the Yetzirah try to prevent us from achieving our utmost in our relationship with Hashem. V'chayetu be'elu. And it's similar matters that entail great effort where much, one must struggle with the evil inclination and its wiles, which seek to cool the ardor of a man's soul, claiming that he ought not to dissipate his money in the case of charity or his health in matters requiring physical exertion. A lot of times a person gets inspired. They're like, wow, I'm going to go beyond my mouth. The Yitzhah says, well, let's take it easy, cool down. This is beyond what halacha requires you. It tries to cool the person down. So we can tap into this resource and say, hey, don't listen to the Yitzhah. Tap into this resource to push the Yitzhah away when it tells you to take it easy. Because the person... The Yitzhah will say, don't squander your money. And furthermore, the Yitzhah will say, don't squander your health. Of course, we're not allowed to squander our health, meaning we're not allowed to jeopardize our health. But we have to know that a person was created to serve Hashem. So every energy that we have, every resource that we have, whatever gift that we have is really here in service of Hashem. With this measure in mind, we would say, okay, everything I have, I will use to Hashem, even if it means jeopardizing health. We're not allowed to jeopardize health. But the reason why we're not allowed to jeopardize health is because, as this is what the Rambam writes in Hilchasteus, laws of character development, that keeping our body healthy is part of serving Hashem. If we don't have a healthy body, God forbid, we can't serve Him properly. We must preserve our health. But the reason why I preserve our health is not because we're being careful. Oh my gosh, I don't want to squander my health. No, I would love to squander my health, but I can't because I'm serving Hashem and Hashem wants my body to be healthy. When we have this new barometer that I would be squandering my health and yet I won't squander my health because Hashem doesn't want me to, then we're more honest with ourselves. Does this actually mean squandering health? If we're ready to squander health and the reason why we don't is because Hashem doesn't want us to, then we can make the calculation more properly instead of just saying, hey, I want to chill right now. It is very easy for a person to resist and subjugate his nature when he considers deeply that to conquer his nature in all of the above and more, and in fact, do the very opposite, meaning to exert himself strenuously, both bodily and financially, is much lighter suffering than death. May God preserve us. He's taking this into mind. He's going to push himself to his limit because he would die. Dying is the ultimate discomfort. Well, how about enduring this little bit of discomfort in order to further his relationship with Hashem? Because when it comes to, why does a person die? 
instead of bow down to the idol. Why is he doing that? He doesn't want to separate from Hashem. It's not about adding anything in his connection with Hashem. It's about not losing the connection that he has. But what about to add? What about to further? What about to intensify their relationship? Surely it's worth the investment of pushing yourself a little more than you would in order to intensify the connection that you have with Hashem. Yet he would lovingly and willingly have accepted the pain of death, God preserve us, so as not to be separated from Hashem's unity and oneness, even for a moment by an act of idolatry, God forbid. For as, as mentioned earlier, every Jew would sacrifice his life rather than practice idolatry since he knows that it represents separation from Hashem. Not just would a Jew die for Hashem, he would do it willingly and lovingly. I was trying to find the source because I heard this many times and I couldn't find the source, but I've heard many times that people who died al-Kiddush Hashem in sanctification of Hashem's name died with a smile on their mouth. There was a joy and a pleasure that they had when they gave up their life for Hashem. A person would be dying with joy and pleasure not to separate from Hashem. How much more so should he go the extra mile lovingly and willingly in order to intensify his connection with Hashem. So intensify his connection with Hashem when it comes to Torah study, intensify his connection to Hashem when it comes to prayer, intensify his connection to Hashem when it comes to acts of charity, and intensify his relationship with Hashem when it comes to squandering health and wealth. Now again, we're not allowed to squander our health, but going just till the point. There's a story of a famous chassid, Rabbi Yaakov Mordechai, Vespalov, his name was. He was the rabbi of Poltava in Ukraine. And he lived a very demanding life of himself. For 30 years, he didn't sleep in a bed. He didn't sleep in a bed. For 30 years, he slept on a bench instead of a bed. He, he passed away at the age of 60. And when he was passing away, he said that he erred. Because putting on to fill in one more time is worth more than 30 years of sleeping on a bench. It's dissipating the health, that's not acceptable because we have to be as healthy as we can and use all of our efforts in serving Hashem. So now we're going to move to the next section. Here he, a person would be giving up his life so as not to separate from Hashem. How much more so should he go through the extra discomfort lovingly and willingly to become closer to him? Because in this respect, there's an advantage in two ways. Remember, a person dies so as not to bow down to the idol, that's not to lose the connection. But going the extra mile to intensify the connection is now adding a connection. And the, the addition is in two ways, and this is what's going to be coming up right now. Certainly then, he ought to accept lovingly and willingly the comparatively minor pain of exerting himself in the performance of the mitzvah in order to bind himself to Hashem, that's one, and with an eternal bond, and that's two. Now we are already attached to Hashem, <coughs> like we learned in chapter two. The Jewish soul is part of Hashem above. But yet, every time we do a mitzvah, we intensify the connection. <coughs> you cannot compare the connection that you have with Hashem as it is, to the connection that you have every time you do a mitzvah. Here, a person would be giving up their life so as not to detach from Hashem. But do you know what happens when they go the extra mile? They form a greater relationship. They have a greater form of attachment. Isn't it worth it to go the extra mile? Isn't it worth it to go through a little bit of discomfort to gain this 
closer and deeper attachment to Hashem, because as, as we are to Hashem, Hashem is infinite. And so there's always another level of attachment that we can reach with Him. And then furthermore, this attachment is going to be eternal. La'ilam ba'ed, forever and ever. Because remember, we spoke about the light of Hashem within us. That doesn't take time into consideration. To this light of Hashem, everything is eternal. This light of Hashem transcends time. There's no such thing as a small time and a big amount of time. At this point, everything is eternal. When it comes to the decision of not to bow down to an idol, a Jew dies because this moment is the most eternal moment that there is. There's no moment afterwards for him. He doesn't say he'll do teshuva afterwards. This moment itself is eternal. And yet, it's possible that although a Jew would, do, would bow down to the idol, God forbid, and what would happen to him, his soul would be cut off. So that would be an eternal separation. But he can always do teshuva. He can always uproot the sin that he created, and now the separation will not be eternal. But when it comes to a mitzvah, the bond that's created with Hashem in a mitzvah really is eternal. This bond never goes away. This bond lasts forever. Hashem, His will, exists beyond time. Every time we connect Him, we reach up into this eternal space and we unite with Him. At that space that we unite with Him, the connection that we made is eternal. Never ever goes away. And this is also a very important reason why it's so special to encourage somebody to do a mitzvah, even if that mitzvah, we don't know if they'll do another mitzvah afterwards, and even if that mitzvah is just for a brief amount of time. But it's because the connection that they forge with Hashem in that mitzvah moment is an eternal moment, and that connection lasts forever. There is a twofold a fortiori argument here. Firstly, performing a mitzvah actively binds man to Hashem, as opposed to refraining from idolatry, which merely prevents separation from him. Secondly, the bond affected by a mitzvah is an eternal one, as opposed to the temporary separation from Hashem caused by idolatry. <coughs> now, if one would sacrifice his life to refrain from idolatry, how much more so ought he accept whatever hardships are entailed by fulfilling the mitzvahs, since their performance has both these gains that are not found in the rejection of idolatry. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to explain how mitzvahs affect an eternal bond with Hashem. So this is the first thing we're explaining. Remember we said it affects a bond, and the bond lasts forever. Now we're looking at the bond that's created through the performance of a mitzvah. For by fulfilling Hashem's will through this service, despite the exertion involved, the innermost divine will will be revealed in it, internally as opposed to surrounding it or hovering over it from above, and very manifestly without any obscurity whatever. As explained in chapter 23, the mitzvahs represent Hashem's innermost will, and when performs them, this will stands completely revealed. We studied this at length in chapter 23. A person who does a mitzvah gives expression to Hashem's innermost will. A mitzvah is an expression of Hashem's innermost will. So now, when a person does Hashem's innermost will, this will becomes manifest within his soul internally, not just in a surrounding way, and not just that, it's very manifest. Now, when there is no concealment of the countenance of the divine will, there is nothing at all that is separate from godliness, having an independent and separate identity of its own. For as explained in chapters 22 and 24, no created being can possibly consider itself separate from Hashem unless the divine will is concealed from it. Since the inner aspect of this will stands revealed in one's performance of a mitzvah, it does not permit any sense of separation. 
Okay, remember that we learned that what does it mean, Shema Yisrael Hashem, Lokino Hashem Echad? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It doesn't just mean there's only one God. It means that there's only one existence. There is no other existence besides for Hashem. This is the principle of Achtas Hashem, the unity of Hashem. There is nothing else besides Hashem, period. Affirming Hashem as God, say, Anochi Hashem Lokecha, I am God, your God, means not just that there, you should not have another God, and I am the only God that there is. It means I am the only reality. However, our world is beset by a condition of Hester Panim, concealment of the countenance. Living in this world means that it seems to us created beings as though there is a separation, that there's God, and that there's, God forbid, a different existence. Now, when a person studies Torah, when a person does a mitzvah, they give expression to Hashem's will in a manifest form. They now become channels for the divine. And when a person becomes a channel for the divine, the truth that Hashem is the only existence is openly felt within their soul. Hashem's light shines internally and manifestly within the person's soul. Now, although physically we don't feel it, because our physical body obscures the divine, our soul senses this connection. Our soul feels openly and manifestly this truth that Hashem is the only God, that Hashem is the only reality, and this light that shines within a person's soul is the most essential self of Hashem beyond what any of the worlds can sustain. So when a person does a mitzvah, they're in touch with this deepest truth, and the union that they have with Hashem is so great and so deep. It's a union that happens only with the soul. This doesn't happen in any of the worlds. Even in the highest, highest worlds, there's no unity with this level of Hashem. So the unity that is achieved with one mitzvah is incredible. It's a unity that surpasses all of existence. And not just is it manifest in the person's soul, a deeper connection. Remember, we said we're already connected with Hashem. But this unity even manifests, even is affected in the animal soul. And the animal soul is not already connected to Hashem. This is something new that's happening. Can I ask you just one that the, um, it, despite the exertion involved, like why would that matter? In fact, you think almost if you exerted yourself more, maybe you have more of that internal. Strategy. Because what we're saying is that we're not just saying about, there's two ways that we're channeling this energy, this resource that we have in order to serve Hashem. They were, sur me ra, turn away from evil, va'asitov, do good. So, like we discussed last class, usually sur me ra means don't do a sin. Asetov means do a mitzvah. However, if you look at it more carefully, sur ra doesn't just mean don't do a sin. It also means don't neglect to do a mitzvah that you need to be doing. If a person says, hey, they're stingy, they're not going to give any money to tzedakah, even though halacha requires that he gives 10%, they're already being negligent. That's already a sin. In this context now, asetov doesn't just mean do a mitzvah. It means go beyond what you need to be doing in a mitzvah. It means Exert yourself. Break a sweat a little bit. You know, it's like, eh, I'm just going to get by. No, 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 I'm just going to get by. My husband told me that he was once encouraging one of his students to, you know, push himself a little bit more to fulfill his potential. And the student broke out with a very great smile, and he said, I'm good. (laughs) And my husband said to him, I'm good means you're in an old age home. There's no such thing as, I'm good. What does it mean, I'm good? Push yourself. Go a little more. Go the extra mile. Going the extra mile means you're going to have to work a little harder. It means you're going to exert yourself. It means praying with more concentration. It means 
using your brain more when you're studying Torah, it give, means giving more than what you're comfortable giving. It means giving with a bigger heart than you were planning on giving, with a greater joy that you were planning on giving. So that's why it means exertion. Oh, exertion means pushing yourself beyond your comfort level to do the mitzvah. <laughs> Thus, his soul, meaning the soul of the person performing the mitzvah, both the divine and the animating souls, and their garments of thought, speech, and action, will be united in perfect unity with the divine will and with the infinite light of, the ble- of Hashem, blessed be He, as explained above. This details how the mitzvahs affect a bond between man and Hashem. The Alter Rebbe will now go on to explain why this bond is eternal. So what's happening here? We said that the soul has three garments. The divine soul has three garments. The animal soul has three garments. What are garments? Garments are ways of expression. These garments are thought, speech, and action. You would think thought is a garment? Yes, thought is a garment. Thought is expressing your own intellect and emotions to yourself. Thought is an expression of yourself to yourself. Speech is an expression of yourself to others. You can still see how the person is connected to the expression. And the most external garment is action, where a person expresses themselves outside of themselves, sometimes often with a medium that's outside of themselves. And sometimes you wouldn't even know who did that action. I don't know who made this flower pot. I don't know who baked this cake. I don't know who sliced the cake, because the action is the external most garment. When a person does a mitzvah, they use at least one of their divine soul's garments. Now the divine soul, let's say the person is studying Torah. So they're using the divine soul's power of thought and the divine soul's power of speech. The divine soul is using the brain in order to think and the mouth in order to speak. However, like we learned previously, the divine soul is too beyond the body to actually have a relationship with the body. In order for the divine soul to act on the body, it needs to act through the medium of the animal soul. So now, When a person thinks thoughts of Torah and says words of Torah, what's involved over here? The divine soul's garments of thought and speech, and also the animal soul's garments of thought and speech, because it has to act through the animal soul. The animal soul is the medium to relate the divine soul to the body. Within the divine, these garments are the divine soul and the animal soul. So the union that is happening during the performance of the mitzvah, Hashem's will is being manifest openly revealed there's a perfect fusion that's happening between the divine soul and its garments and the animal soul and its garments with Hashem. A perfect fusion happening with the performance of the mitzvah. So when somebody goes the extra mile and they attach to Hashem in this way, they now achieve a greater level of unity than they could have achieved. And they achieve a union not just with their divine soul and its garments, but even with the animal soul and its garments. I, I just have a question here. Animal soul, I guess I never thought it had thought and speech. Sure, thought, speech, and action. It feels like the animal is, is more of a active, you know, grounded kind of soul. So, so is it base? So is it just like our base primal, like sort of like primitive, like. Like it's our I'm zoological hung, like, soul. Like, like I'm hungry, but the divine is making a bracha and, and having showing a little restraint versus like. Like, you know, exactly. Like grabbing. Okay, so that's so. So, so every we have two souls, and this is what we learned right in the beginning of Tanya to explain to us our struggle in life. Because people can come across thinking they're a hypocrite. Just a second ago, I was praying and I was really with devotion. Just a second ago, I was giving charity and I was really giving with my full heart. And now, what has become of me? All of a sudden, there's an anger. All of a sudden, there's negative thoughts about somebody. 
all of a sudden somebody just doesn't want to make a bracha, what's going on? So it's not that a person is a hypocrite, there's a struggle between them. There's two souls within us. There's the, the animal soul, and that's the, the soul that just wants to be comfortable. It's the human biological soul. In this sense, it's just we're part of the zoo. It's the, there's the monkey, and then there's a higher level, and that's the person. And then there's a divine soul that's literally a part of Hashem, and this is the transcendent soul. The transcendent soul can only act on the body through the, the biological soul. What kind of soul? The divine. I call it transcendent. The nefesh elokis, the divine soul. So it's a refined. Is it is it always two separate things, or is it? Can you say that the divine soul is sort of like a refined animal, soul? like where like this is what you want, but you're uh, but you're refining yourself, like you're showing some restraint, or you're doing things on a higher level versus like. So the divine soul is, is perfect. It only wants to do, its only mode of expression is the mitzvahs and the Torah. That's its mode of expression. The divine soul is here to refine the animal soul. The animal soul, if a person reaches the ultimate perfection, they can transform their animal soul to be another force for good. And in that respect, the animal soul is even more powerful than the divine soul because it has a energy and an excitement and a passion, it's bubbly, that the divine soul is more cool, calm, and collective. The main, the main abode of the divine soul is in the mind, and the main abode of the animal soul is in the heart. And the heart, as we know, is bubbly and fiery and passionate. And when we're able to harness our animal soul and use it as an, another force for good, then we are really lucky. But what's wrong with passion? There's nothing wrong with passion. Passion is wonderful. So the animal soul, the animal soul is... But Take the passion, unrestrained passion, passion, passion is terrible. Is bad. What? Unrestrained passion is bad. Unrestrained passion is bad. Oh. It's about taking the passion and using, using it for good. Yeah, it's not, yeah. yeah. Shlomo Malach says, yeah, right. we talked about the ox. We talked about the ox today and how it's, it's <coughs> a, an animal that works with effort and toil. Shlomo Malach says, yeah. much produce happens with the energy of the animal, of the ox. And it's the same thing with us. When we actually channel our animal soul to be another force for good, then the passion is wonderful. But look at all those people who just live a life of passion. How terrible and destructive. So, just to clarify. Okay. Put your energy on the right road. Exactly. Harness your energy for the right thing. Our animal soul is just our pet. We have to put a leash on it, and it wants us to be the master. That's the thing. People don't realize that. The animal soul is not happy when the divine soul is not in charge. Just like the dog is not happy to be the master of the house. When the animal soul is in charge, nobody's happy. The animal soul is not happy, the divine soul is not happy. When the divine soul <coughs> is happy, both of them are happy. It may take some work to keep the animal in check. It might fight, it might resist, but really it just wants to be your aunt pet. Just like children need borders. That's right, children want borders. They want you to say no. They want exactly. you to say no, even though they're going to throw that tantrum anyway. They just want to know that you're strong enough to resist. Yes. So let's wrap up what we said until now. And that is that we have this power within us that is so potent that a Jew will give up their life rather than separate from Hashem. And we can tap into this power to first of all hold ourselves back from going against the will of Hashem. If we know that we have this power that to not separate from Hashem even for a moment, and the, even on the pains of death, 
and the pains of death are the ultimate in pain, how much more so would we endure a lighter amount of pain so as not to separate from him even for a moment? And furthermore, we can harness this power to intensify our connection with him. When a person gives up their life so as not to bow down to an idol, so as not to separate. But here, they're going through a little bit of discomfort, not just not to separate, but to add and intensify in their relationship with Hashem. And we're in the middle of a really potent thought that we'll have to finish next week. And so, uh, opening for question and discussion.